and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. My name's Nicole Rowan, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. And today I'm very happy to be joined by Graham Prowse, director at Webb Martin Consulting and TaxEd who guested way back on episode five, Catching Up on Cases. And that was one of our most popular episodes. So we've, um, we've invited Graham back to talk about a few more. Um, in this case today, we're gonna to talk about some medical related tax cases. So um, just a little bit of background on Graham. He brings um, quite a lot of experience uh, to his work at Webb Martin Consulting and Tax Ed. Uh, some of his speciali- speciality sorry, includes um, structuring of purchases and sales of businesses, restructures, rollovers and mergers, as well as superannuation compliance matters and income tax consolidation. Graham also assists his taxpayer clients um, who are dealing with a- the ATO in ruling requests, reviews, audits and objections. So I'm really happy to be talking about um, some tax cases today. So thanks for joining us, Graham. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So the three cases we're going to talk about today, the Helios case, which was a capital versus revenue matter, Moffat case, which was all about whether an individual uh, medical practitioner, in this case a dentist, was an employee for both annual leave long and long service leave and also superannuation purposes. And finally, the optical superstore case, which was a payroll tax case um, in Victoria, but has uh, ramifications throughout Australia because of the harmonisation of the payroll tax rules. So where do you want to start? I think we start <laughs> with Helios. Um, I'm not going to do them alphabetically, but Helios <laughs> seems like a, a good place to start because Helios uh, is probably the one that I think most practitioners might have come across in some fashion or other and really is probably a starting point for them in terms of what they're looking at, what their clients are doing who've gone into these sorts of arrangements. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Helios, so let's go through the basic facts. Yeah. Sure. So Helios used to be known as primary health care um, and like many others, primary health uh, went into the market in the early 2000s and started uh, incentivising doctors uh, and other specialists, not just general practitioners, to come and work in their centres. Is this when we started to see the, the kind of introduction of this kind of super medical centres? That's right. Yep. So essentially the aggregators of medical services started to... Aggregators to, of medical services. That's a great yep. phrase, isn't yes. it? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, hmm. So when they started sort of coming in in the early 2000s uh, and incentivising doctors to come and work in their centres or come and practice in their centres is probably more technically the right way to describe it, uh, they would be signing up and originally a lot of the the contracts looked like the medical aggregator was buying the goodwill or buying the practice of the doctor Mm -hmm. and was paying for that and the doctor was uh, then signing a a period of service where they would start working through that that medical centre. So where that sort of began for a lot of uh, a lot of practices and a lot of aggregators was that uh, I never saw any specific written advice given out by this, but it appears that a lot of doctors originally were given advice that this was a capital transaction from their perspective and that they, if they'd been running their practice for a while, could in a lot of cases access the CGT general discount and access the small business CGT concessions such that the tax payable on the incentive 
amount that they received was very low or in some cases nil. So we had payments being made by Helios or might have been known as Primary Healthcare. Yep, and others. um, And others, of course, other aggregators, yes, made to uh, medical practitioners. The medical practitioners were treating that payment on capital account and um, recording a CGT event, A1, and utilising all those fantastic CGT concessions, small business concessions. Which sounded like a good outcome at the time, (laughs) didn't it? (laughs) Yeah. What was was Helios and the other aggregators, how were they treating that payment? Well, it's a bit harder to know unless you're the accountant in a probably a large accounting firm for these, Mm. but I did... Uh, I guess I've come across people and talked to people over time, but it did appear that they were treating that as being deductible. Um, back then, even more so, but, you know, before the Helios case came out, certainly in Helios's case, their position was that it was deductible for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, the position started off as being fully deductible for the aggregator making the payment, but somehow not taxable for the doctor out of the you know, the situation that yes. was income on one side and capital on the mm-hmm. other side. Yeah. So the tax office originally issued a few private binding rulings to doctors agreeing that it was capital mm-hmm. um, in the 2000s, but certainly by 2013, the tax office was consistently saying that it was not uh, a capital transaction, that essentially that it was ordinary income as an inducement to practice at the centre and there was no actual sale of goodwill that occurred. So there was a bit of a project that went on uh, where the, the ATO contacted a large number of doctors who worked in these sorts of centres mm-hmm. and uh, there was varying degrees of voluntary slash kind of reluctant voluntary uh, adjustment, uh, either by, by negotiation or voluntary disclosure and sometimes under audit, uh, where uh, whether the ATO was still in time to amend, they did amend mm-hmm. and, uh, and practitioners... And that's back, notable, isn't it, where the ATO was in time to amend? Because you said that was 2013, and, and the Helios case actually goes back to 2002 to 2007. Yes. Payments made um, between uh, those income years. So it did take the ATO a little while to kind of, I guess, catch up and, and provide absolute clarity to the profession about the treatment of these payments or receipts mm. for the medical practitioners. Mm. And you've got to have a little bit of sympathy for the, with the tax office, but only a little bit, of course. Um, <laughs> he says with his tongue in his cheek. But the, the tax might office... give my regards to everyone at the tax office <laughs> yeah. who are listening today, my former employer. <laughs> <laughs> but they, the tax office only see transactions probably to a large degree as returns are lodged and they become available to them. So mm. they are always in a position of having to look back and, and find out yes. in, in a probably a slow reveal type of fashion, bit by bit, piece by That's piece, right. as yep. to what's gone on. So you know, they, yeah, they, they're only ever going to know behind, be behind the curve mm-hmm. and, and know after the event. Mm-hmm. So in some ways that's not surprising, but that's why there's the, the period of review um, rules that you know, returns can be amended within the two year, years or the four yep. years. So. so I just want to um, kind of summarise. What we've got is... Uh, contracts or guess some kind of arrangement that under underpin the payment by the um, medical aggregators to the medical practitioners um, but also what that created or whether it was that that created it or there was another contract that uh, created the need or the obligation for the medical practitioner to then work out of the particular center hmm. for a certain period of time so there were then some, you know, contractual obligations, whether we call them restraint clauses or 
yeah. something like that in, put in place as well, perhaps under a separate contract. Yeah, there generally yep. were separate contracts. So um, the contracts generally had a, a, a sale contract, which was an upfront amount that was paid. Yep. Um, and that transferred patient records, sometimes transferred plant and equipment. I'm aware of at least one case where it uh, involved the, the acquisition of the service entity that the practitioner had mm. and all of their stuff. Okay. And right. so that the, the incoming equivalent of Helios um, practiced out of the existing doctor, the, the doctor's medical rooms okay. for a time until mm-hmm. they built their own centre and moved a couple of years later. Right. Yep. Um, so it's, it wasn't always straight into you know, a nice new centre that still smelled mm. of fresh paint, etc. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but Helios uh, went from from 17 to 35 centres over the five years that the tax office looked at. So mm-hmm. they were certainly in, an, in a, a significant expansion phase. Yes. Yeah, they doubled their centres. Um, there's no information in the cases to the size of centres, whether they went from, um, whether they're all equivalent in size or whether the doubling in the number of centres was more than doubling in terms of their ability to service, yep. service patients. And hence what we're looking at in the Helios case is, I believe, payments totalling $158 million paid out to 505 medical practitioners. Yes, so mm. not insignificant Over that period. in the yeah. capital income question <laughs> yes. in terms of tax yeah. $158 million. not insignificant, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so the service contract that the practitioner then entered into in Helios's case, and some of the other cases we'll touch on later had different different uh, clauses, but they it, it said that the, the practitioner agreed to conduct their pra- the practice from the medical centre that was operated by Helios. Uh, the doctor agreed to work for at least 50 hours a week for 48 weeks of a year. So that's, you know, if you think about the our friends at the tax office at their 37.5, although I'm sure a lot of them work more, um, yeah, 50 hours a week in anyone's language is a, a serious level of workload every week. Mm-hmm. Um, they agreed not to practice anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the patient records were owned by, by Helios. And there's, which is what you were sort of uh, referring to earlier, there was a restraint of trade that prevented the doctor from working for a period of time and within a geographical area of the centre that they worked, that they conducted their practice out of. And if they left within that period of time, then the amount under that separate sale of goodwill agreement mm-hmm. that had been paid to them was prorated, had to be paid back. So mm. if a simple example, you were paid $500,000 and a five-year restraint was put in and you left after three years, you had to hand back $200,000. Right. Mm. So the tax office in the reviews that I've seen certainly read the two contracts as being very much it linked with each other and yes. to be read as, yep. a, as an overarching agreement mm. rather than two separate and independent agreements. So the fact that there needed to be that potential repayment if you didn't meet the restraint um, period kind mm-hmm. of does throw into question perhaps whether you, the business was being acquired or not, doesn't it? It does, but if you, th- if you think about when you go to your doctor and you pay, the medical provider number that is on the, the receipt or invoice that you get is the doctor's own provider mm-hmm. number. Yes. Yeah, you can only get medical yep. practices, uh, services that are GST free directly from the medical practitioner. Yes. So the, the structure is always set up that you're being billed and you're paying the doctor. Mm. So now those are the sorts of factors that the tax office would have thought about in coming to the conclusion that you can't really sell a practice if it, the only way to 
conduct the practice involves you using a number that is personal to you mm. and their medical services using your professional skill and judgment that only you can exercise yeah mm. how, how do you argue that a, a practice has been sold if you're separately saying that the yes. service entities may be a different business and it's looking after you and seven other doctors in your your mm. practice then I think you've got more of an argument, but for the med- individual medical practitioner, mm. it's very hard to, yes. to see how that argument could, could win. And that's mm. yeah, essentially where that landed out of the ATO's reviews of individual practitioners sort of from 2010 probably through till two or three years ago when they so, got through them all. So that's why the ATO's had that view that the payment to them is an incentive payment on revenue or that the... So therefore on revenue for the doctors... Yep. Um, is it also the reason why the ATO's position is that the payment is on capital on capital account for Helios, though? It's not. <laughs> that is clearly... Uh, yeah, well, as I say, we started with it was yeah. deductible and ca- on, re- on deductions, if you like. It was fully deductible, but fully on capital for income. And we're sort of doing a full 180-degree turnaround here, aren't we? So, because we've now landed, which I know you're going to get to, but we've yep. landed with it being on revenue for the doctors but capital for the aggregators who are making the payments. And this is, mm. I think this is going to be interesting uh, in the future because in Helios's situation, as I said earlier, they went from 17 to 35 centres. Mm. And they, over that five-year five year period from 2002 to 2007, when they paid out that $150-odd million, they signed up over 500 practitioners. Mm. Now, any accountant is probably thinking, listening to this, is probably thinking, okay, 500 practitioners, if they're all on average about the same size, each one of them is 0.2% of mm. the whole of mm. what what primary yeah. signed up or Helios signed up. So how can some, something that small in terms of the incremental increase to the business that uh, Helios was operating, how can something that small be on capital account? Because it's really, yeah, 0.2% is pretty small. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and yet when we're looking back at it, it seems like a lot to us because we're, you know, using that word again, aggregating it, yeah. That's right. So perhaps um, perhaps we should just focus on where we did land with Helios because we had the full federal court that has found that it's on capital account, overturning the de- decision by the federal court. Yes. Um, yeah, so, so the, prime, yeah. the original fe- federal court decision was that the business that Helios had was the provision of services and facilities to the practitioners, whereas the full federal court... Uh, uh, Just before you get to the full federal court, on that basis, the federal court was saying that the practitioners, the doctors, for example, Mm -hmm. were actually the customers... Of Helios. Of Helios, Mm -hmm. and therefore the payment was just to bring in customers. That's right. And therefore didn't go to capital account because it's just part of their operating activities. That's right. Yes. That's right. So that was the federal court decision and the full federal court. Yeah. So the full federal court found that the lump sums were for a number of things. Firstly, for them to stop their existing practice in the location that they had it. To Secondly, to commence trading as part of the centre under the, the primaries, not only under practising under the primary name, but practising under the required mode of practice the primary had. And I'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. And thirdly, to accept the restraints that I mentioned earlier. So in terms of the mode of practice, so Helios put some significant sort of rules around it. And I've touched on some of them in terms of the 50 hours a week. Uh, they had to be subject to the roster that Helios put out. Mm. That roster included mandatory periods where they had to work between Christmas and New Year. Mm. Uh, 
they didn't get to choose what fees were charged to clients. Helios set all of those fees. So the only real um, freedom of, of, uh, of choice, if you like, that the practitioners had was in relation to patient care. And that, in that day, certainly had complete freedom mm. of choice. Mm. But in terms of the, the operation of the practice and their mm. part yes. that they played, they were very much told what they were doing, which sounds mm. a bit like mm. an employee. Yes, yeah. we might than, come back to that yeah, later. But I'm just flagging it now. But <laughs> yeah. If, yeah, if you don't, if you don't choose, if you've got to apply to get some annual leave, you're told when your roster, you're told yeah, when, your roster when you're rostered is, on, yeah, you've got to work mm. 50 hours a week. Mm. Yeah, you, you're really not, um, you're not sort of master of your own destiny in that sense. So, coming in terms of overturning the decision of the federal court, they really said that the doctors were not the customers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that well, they they said that the payment that was being made was that the the payment was to essentially bring in the resource that that Helios needed for it to run its business of the the medical centre, mm-hmm. and that that acquisition, without the acquisition of the practitioner services, Helios couldn't run a medical centre because they didn't have any doctors and wouldn't be re- and generating so revenue. That's mm. the same. That's analogous if you like, to the acquisition of the building for yep. the premises to operate out of or any other sort of capital type of transaction. So the payments created the infrastructure that they needed that was essential to having a revenue-generating right. structure or profit-making structure. That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And and the whole, you know, we're buying goodwill argument was also, um, just as an aside, some of the doctors who signed up with Helios were fresh out of school. And mm. fresh out of university mm. or mm. out of the, the okay. hospital system, they didn't yep. have practices. Yes. So the argument that they were buying goodwill of a practice for someone who hadn't actually practiced mm. in their own name, you know, didn't you know, had some issues there. As and well. I believe that some of them also um, uh, were not geographically close to where they ended up practicing, so therefore they couldn't really bring patients over anyway. That's right. Mm. That's absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. So the court therefore you know, it's concluded that the payments to doctors were part of the building the structure of, of Helios's business and therefore were capital. Um, so you know, we, as I said earlier, we started with it being completely 180 degrees from that with it fully deductible but not subject to tax and now it's fully yep. accessible and, and not deductible at all. So um, the... It took me to an interesting, when I was preparing to, to sort of for this discussion, it took me to thinking about cases like the old BP case mm-hmm. and Sharpcan's case, which are also about the income and capital divide. Yes, and BP was very relevant in the Helios judgment too. That's right. Mm. And BP, and, and it takes you to, it took me to, to thinking about, well, how long is the benefit that you're getting how long does it need to be mm. for it to be of capital mm. nature? Mm. You know, if, I, if I pay a month's rent for the use of a building, then that's fairly transitory and therefore is deductible. If I prepaid 10 years worth of rent, would these sorts of cases Mm -hmm. lead to a Mm -hmm. different conclusion because I'm getting quite a long-term benefit uh, available to me? So the BP case was about locking in petrol stations so they sold your fuel. So they only sold BP fuel rather than Shell fuel. Or anyone else's fuel, that's right. And they... They, those agreements were for five years, which is the same as the, the same as these. Here. And I understand in the BP case, those payments were deductible. 
Yes, but the judge, the, the judgment in that case said the five-year period is kind of the neutral point. Ah. It's not mm. leaning towards revenue and it's not <laughs> leaning towards capital. So if you're just looking at that one factor, and clearly you look at more than one factor, mm. but if you're just looking at that single mm. factor at the five-year point, going back to 1970 or whenever the BP case was, I think it was the High Court said five years is the, is the neutral point. Mm. So, so you look he, at the other factors. Here, here we've got five years for that five years that they need to practice out of Helios's medical centres. But I think was it three years after that they they were restricted from practicing within a certain geographic area. Yes. So do we add those three years to the five years? Do we have an eight year uh, enduring benefit here, or can we call three years of you know restricting geographic practice? Can we still call that? I think the yeah. other factors were what the court really right. relied on to, yeah. to then say, on balance, everything, on what's balance, going yeah. on here is, is mm. capital, rather than mm. adding that. You know, there, were, there were situations where practitioners at the end of their five years negotiated for another lump sum amount for a further five-year right. period. So mm. um, that seemed to be more something that the, the decision referred to than someone stood out for, for three years in terms of mm-hmm. the restraint of trade type of situation. Mm. Yeah. So if it was some other factors, what would you say were you know the other two or three factors then that might have contributed to the finding that the payments are on capital? I think, I think the key one was the way that they approached what is primaries or Helios's business. Right. Mm. And if their business really was... Because you, you could take the view that their business was a, what accountants generally think of as a, a service entity business and their customers are the doctors. We're providing the doctors with the receptionist. We're providing the doctors with the rooms to, um, to practice out of and the, the, the dressings and the, you know, the consumables and all that sort of stuff. But they're also provide, the, the court said they're also providing that to the public. Because mm. the public goes to the receptionist, mm. and that's their and first point of contact. That's mm. right to to make the mm. booking or to get the reminder on you via SMS the day before to remember to come and see Doctor Smith. Um, they're going to the the receptionist when they arrive to alert them that they're there. Mm-hmm. They're going back to them at the end to pay mm. their bill. Mm. Yeah, the the public, notwithstanding they're not directly paying the service entity for this, are receiving services. Yeah, they mm. they they're walking into a, a centre like the one that Helios has run are open long hours and are open seven days a week. Mm. So, mm. You, you know, part of what they advertise is you can just turn up and we'll find a doctor to see you. Yes. You don't mm. need to, to book and hope that mm. you can get in soon to see the doctor at which your is, local Which is center. why it's critical that they have a, you know, a, a large number of doctors available there available roster. and, and rostered on very specific times. That's right. Mm. And so that's, that's where... That's the path that the federal full federal court took mm, okay. to get to, to that outcome. Mm. So, so that's that case. That's okay. that case. All right. The so, next case I think we were going to look at was Moffat. It was. Yeah. So uh, I should say Dr. Moffat. Indeed. A dentist who had been practicing since December 1982. In 87, purchased a practice in Parramatta. And from 1 July 2000, the practice traded under the name Active Dental. And then a second surgery was also opened, which was called Immediate Dental. Um, And it's that second surgery um, that I think then another aggregator, 
um, of medical services came along and said, we'll take over this one, thank you very much, and here's some money for us to do so. That's right. So this case was actually... But, but, but this one's not about capital revenue, though, is that's it? That's right. No. So th this case was a, an argument between Dental Corporation and Dr Moffat. Yes. And the, the, from the time that Dr Moffat uh, sold his practice in 2007 to Dental Corporation, he had uh, operated out of or he'd conducted his practice out of a location where Dental Corp ran the service entity and had also a number of other dentists in practice. Now, Dr. Moffat was probably more senior than but, the other but ones. But he was still um, operating out of the same venue or the same location? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. 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 So Dr. Moffat was, um, was I guess, um, you know, the equity owner of the business uh, until 2007 when Dental Corporation took over. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Moffat continued to operate there, I guess, as the senior dentist. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not yeah. clear, but he probably sold just his service entity mm -hmm. and the contractual arrangement he and his own practice had Mm -hmm. yep. with the service entity just transferred to be, uh, I imagine, under different terms, but sure. an arrangement with Dental Corp. So he was the senior the, the senior dentist on mm -hmm. those premises. So like the earlier case, he his professional judgment was completely up to him. Um, he was required to have his own PI insurance. He chose his, own, chose his own professional development, notwithstanding Dental Corp sort of paid an amount towards some of that. Mm -hmm. uh, Dental Corp provided all the administrative services to him. Uh, different to Helios, he chose what fees he was going to charge. He also chose uh, the hours and days that he worked. And there was mm -hmm. one period over the time that was looked at by the the, uh, the case where he took 15 weeks of leave. Yes, yeah. Um, so he, there were still two agreements here. There was still an acquisition agreement for the purchase of the business, but there was also a services agreement. So yep. obviously there was some differences in that services agreement that Dr Moffat had with Dental Corporation compared to, for example, the services agreement or practitioner agreement that Helios had with their practitioners. Yes. Um, because Dr Moffat clearly had a little bit more say in, as you say, his hours, the leave he took, so he wasn't subject to um, a roster being imposed on him. Correct. And right. he acted to some degree, I think... Uh, it's inferred in the case that he acted as a bit of a mentor for some of the younger dentists and if there was a difficult right. matter in relation to a patient, he provided some managerial and administrative mm -hmm. um, skills out of the, out of his seniority and his years of, of being in practice. Um, yep. Certainly Dental Corporation relied on, on that to a degree. Yep. Um, the other couple of things that are probably worth mentioning in relation to the agreement that he had was that the, the, the parties explicitly agreed that he wasn't employed. He was not uh, yep. an employee. I've seen um, that in contracts before, haven't we? We have, we have. <laughs> um, they also agreed that if super uh, contributions were uh, obliged to be paid, then they would have come out of the amounts that Dr Moffat was earning. Mm -hmm. So the going to the earning question though, so the arrangement was that Dr Moffat was to get a proportion of the revenue that was generated if the revenue went over 700,000, he got a bonus amount. If the revenue went under an agreed floor, which was 570,000, then he had to compensate Dental Corp for the shortfall. And I think it's so quite- So he was almost underwriting He was almost, he was, <laughs> he he, was. He was absolutely. <laughs> he was, because one year I think he had to pay a couple hundred thousand dollars, 291,000 dollars back. Mm. I don't know, but I think it was probably the year he took 15 weeks leave. Possibly. I think that, I think that was the year, yes. So, yep. Yes. So he, yep. if, if the, the practice generated under 570000 in revenue, 
then Dr Moffat had to pay out of his own pocket. Mm. And that essentially put Dental Corporation in a position where they were at a lower amount of risk for expenses of running this this practice at this location. Mm. If mm. the revenue dropped and they couldn't afford to pay, you know, they didn't have mm. enough coming in to pay staff and, and rent, yeah. yes. then obviously they were going to make a loss on it. So they, they laid that risk off by, by putting that clause in. So that certainly doesn't sound like a typical employment contract that we enter into with our employer? No, no. Yeah. Well, yes, not too many employees would be prepared to sign an employment contract saying, I'll underwrite you if you don't do so well. Yep. <laughs> so uh, the relationship between Dr Moffat and Dental Corporation deteriorated over time. Uh, it started, the, that started to appear a bit when, despite the restraint of trade, Dr Moffat uh, went from four days a week to three and used the other day a week to start working somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Now, Dental Corporation... Mm don't appear to have done anything about that in terms of what the facts of the case say. So just um, can I just check what the terms of the restraint of trade were? So the, the services agreement signed up with him, did that require him to work for a dental corporation for a particular period of time but didn't actually set out any of the requirements that the you know that the in that you know I think it was five years is that right they had to I work so. for five years but didn't actually set out you know you have to work for thirty five hours a week or fifty hours a week no but, but they just relied on those dollar amounts as being the bonus right. incentive right or the the, yep. the shortfall okay payment. so it was the um, the pay structure that kind of imposed on him a requirement to work for a certain time to ensure he met that yep. or it was penalised if he didn't um, but there was still a requirement for him to actually provide services for at least five years. Yes. yes. And that right. five-year period originally was 2007 to 2012, mm-hmm. and there was quite a long and uh, a difficult process to renegotiate that mm-hmm. to a further period. Right. And even with yep. all of that, he still left in 2014, sort of two or so years after that okay. new period had been yep. agreed to. Yep. So what's our dispute all about here then? So the dispute was that uh, when Dr Moffat left, he cited that he had suffered illness as a result of the the burden of working in that practice and claimed for accrued annual leave, accrued Mm -hmm. long service leave and unpaid superannuation. So this was a civil dispute between them under essentially fair work uh, Mm. law and under the Superannuation Guarantee Act. So we we actually have a, a couple of different acts operating here, don't we? Yes. As you say, the annual leave is under the Fair Work Act. And long service leave, isn't that a, a state matter too? So that would be under the Long Service Leave Act of New South Wales. Yes. And then the superannuation obligation under the Super Guarantee Administration Act. Yeah. Which is a federal act. Yeah. So regulated nice. by the ATO. Yes. But the ATO, as we as you mentioned, um, not a party to this case. It was a, just a civil case between Dr Moffat and Dental Corporation. That's right. Mm. So the relationship had deteriorated to the point where Dr Moffat was was seeking, yeah, you know, saying that he'd not taken any annual leave, not taken any long service leave because he hadn't been paid for the times that he mm-hmm. had not worked yep. in the practice, and so he was saying, well, I've been here for seven years, um, 2007 to 2014. And so I'm entitled to to an amount under each of those. Um, so the full court, in doing their analysis, said, well, there's, there's factors each way. So the factors for Dr Moffat being an independent contractor and therefore not an employee, uh, and this probably more goes to the annual leave and the, mm. the long service leave aspect, was that there was no withholding necessary on the monies that were paid to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, the parties had agreed that super would not be paid. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Dental Corp had no ability to direct Dr. Moffat in terms of his dentistry work. Uh, Dr. Moffat physically issued invoices to Dental Corp every month for the fees that were due to him every month, right. which again an mm-hmm. employee wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Moffat promised the minimum cash flow and paid for shortfalls. Again, not something you'd see an employee do. He wasn't. He had no obligation to work any particular times or rosters. Chose his own holidays. Had his own PI insurance. Uh, in his tax returns that obviously were tendered as part of the evidence, there were a number of expenses that he claimed and did not seek reimbursement from Dental Corp. Whereas mm-hmm. ordinarily, if it's a work-related expense, the employer would, yep. would reimburse. And he set his own fees, as I said. And earlier. I believe with the tax return, he also uh, completed a business schedule. That's that's yes. correct. Yeah. That's so right. they're factors that point to Dr. Moffat not being an employee for annual leave and therefore also for long service leave purposes. Yep. Mm. So the factors the other way. Mm, the other way. Yep. Uh, is a shorter list. <laughs> um, so for the for looking to, at the proposition as to whether he was an employee, uh, the goodwill of the practice wasn't Dr. Moffat's, it was Dental Corp's. Um, and so just noting that this decision was decided before the Helios decision, mm. so they didn't have the benefit of that judgment mm. to think about, but the, the decision they made was that the goodwill was Dental Corp's goodwill. Uh, Dental Corp provided all the premises and equipment, which again is what employees normally have. Mm-hmm. Dental Corp had all of the right to hire and fire staff. Dr. Moffat had some capacity to be involved in that process, but the mm-hmm. final decision was Dental Corp's. And Dental Corp also paid other employees as well as paying Dr. Moffat. Um, so, yeah, he could easily, perhaps under that head, be seen to be an employee. But overall, on those factors that I've just listed, yeah, he's looking far less like an employee than, say, even a doctor in the Helios scenario. When we're using the Fair Work Act, which really just um, uh, kind of looks more to that that kind of common understanding of an employee, he does look he does not look like an employee. Mm. And I think the the fact that um, Dental Corporation didn't really exercise any direction or control is significant too. That tends to be a significant factor for Fair Work Act. That's right. Uh, that, and that freedom was really mm. where it came down to. That mm. he, he, they were just, his freedoms were so wide that they couldn't come to a conclusion that he was, uh, there, was a, there was an employment relationship yeah, there. Yeah, th- that freedom to set his own hours, set his own days, go and leave when he wanted, etc. Um, so, so the ultimate decision for annual leave and long service leave purposes what he, is that he was not an employee. Correct. What about for super? Super has a different set of tests. Very different set of tests. <laughs> People are perhaps saying, why is this so complicated? <laughs> and, it, and it is complicated. When you've got an employer or a, someone who's engaging people and they have to sit down and work out what their employee obligations are, they've got multiple acts to take into account with these multiple cases of interpretation. So mm. it is a challenge. Yeah, yeah. the doctor through. walks into the accountant's door and says, I've been offered this you know, incentive to go and work for a big aggregator. You don't just have to think about helios and is it income, mm. is it capital, and uh, you have to think, are you an employee? Mm. Yeah. If it all goes pear-shaped, are you going to have a crack for super? Yes. Yeah, there's, yep. there's a fair bit in there. Yeah. So but going back to the tests for superannuation, the tests are, uh, have three parts to it. Firstly, that there's a contract. Secondly, the contract is wholly or principally for the labour of the person. And finally, the person must actually do the work under that contract. So the agreement that Dental Corp and Dr Moffat entered into were, was for Dr Moffat to work 
in the practice. So yes. the, the first and the third of those, the court very quickly said, yes, they're absolutely met. The real question is whether the work is wholly or principally for his labour. Uh, and and I just note there, um, labour of course does isn't just digging holes, is it, or laying bricks. Labour can be utilising your mind, you, you know, the skills of your hand, yeah. fine motor skills, etc. That's yeah. right. So it wasn't just his dentistry services, which is clearly a whole bunch of knowledge, but also, you know, very good hand-eye coordination and skills in that area mm. as well, as we mm. would all hope. Um, but also his practice management skills. Yeah, management uh, of other staff. His assistance to other dentists in relation Mm. to issues that they came across. All of those, as well as his promise to generate a minimum cash flow, meant that that he was going to provide his labour to put in enough effort to generate that minimum cash flow. So the services provided by him were decided to be principally for his labour and provided under the contract, and so super was payable. And I should note that the clause that we're talking about here is Section 12, Subsection 3 of the Super Guarantee Administration Act. Correct. Which, um, which does require or does deem a person to be an employee if they are paid um, under a contract that is wholly or principally for their labour, yep. which as you outlined. Yeah. So we've got um, Dr Moffat then uh, now entitled to superannuation. That's right. And I did, I did wonder in a, in a moment of whimsy about this, having read this and realised that the decision was handed down, I think, in July last year, mm-hmm. the super amnesty was going on at that time. <laughs> and I did, it did occur to mm. me to think, oh, I can just envisage the room and we've got all these QCs and barristers talking to the CEO of Helios, of, of, uh, of uh, Dental Corp, saying, now, do we appeal to the High Court or do we just do a voluntary disclosure and get no penalties? It's seven years super. Let's run the numbers. And what did they do? <laughs> uh, they actually tried to appeal. They did it, try to appeal but to they the might High have Court. They the super as well. I'm not entirely <laughs> They may sure. have. But, um, I have no but inside the, the High Court didn't um, chose not to hear the appeals. Correct. So they, um, they weren't granted special leave. Yes. So the full federal court is the final decision. I should note that Helios has also been finalised as well. It's no longer subject to appeal. Yes. Um, so they're both finalised. Just a question then. We've got Dr Moffat, who under his services agreement, the uh, full federal court has found that uh, he is entitled to superannuation. If we apply some of the reasonings in the, the Moffat case to the Helios case, do we think that those 505 medical practitioners um, working for Helios, and I'm sure there's quite a lot more than that now, um, would they also be, on the same reasoning, eligible for superannuation? Well, you can only say that the risk is absolutely there Mm. because there's clearly, in all of these aggregator-type situations, they've clearly got a contract in in relation to... uh, the, the doctor and the service entity. That's wholly really, or principally for their labour? Well, it'll come down to the contract because some mm. of the contracts will say things like what in Moffat's case said, which was that you'll come and work in our practice and you'll do these things mm-hmm. and we'll pay you for that. Because remember, dental practitioners don't get Medicare. So that I'm imagining, I don't have any special knowledge here, but I'm imagining because they don't mm. get Medicare, maybe their billing arrangements can be done differently mm. and maybe... Dental Corp could be raising the bills rather than the individual medical practitioner raising the bills. So okay. I, don't, I don't know yep. whether that's the case. But if it is the case, then Dental Corp is the entity that's earning the money and it's paying the, the dental practitioner. Compare that to in 
medicine where the medical practitioner is the only one who can provide that GST-free medical service. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, the arrangement is the other way around. Mm. But even if the payment arrangement is differently, do you think that you've still, irrespective of that, have a contract that is wholly or principally for a person's labour? Well, if you look at the conditions that the doctors worked under in relation to Helios, mm. where they were told the rosters, they were told the fees, they were mm. you know, told the, the hours, you can only take a small amount of annual leave every year, etc., mm. etc. It has a lot of hallmarks of an employment type of relationship. Mm. And whilst the, the word employment and the phrase wholly or principally for labour are going to have differences, they're going to have a lot of similarities mm. as well. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely, there's a risk. And, and, and your doctor coming to, you, to the accountant saying, mm. here's the contract, what do you think? Yeah, you're an accountant, you're not a lawyer. You're really sort of starting to um, yeah. be able to give some practical advice, part of which is we mm. should have a lawyer look at this. Yes. Yeah, and then they're the challenges for individuals who just want to actually go and work for someone and That's put right. their skills. Yeah. Well, a, lot, a lot of people in this situation say, what I enjoy about what I do is looking after people's health and all mm. of the admin mm. and stuff that yeah. I used to have to do on weekends and nights and, and what have you, that gets taken away. They're and offloading that and they like that. That gets me back to the why <laughs> yeah. I became a medico mm. in the first place. So, yeah. yeah, their motivations are certainly not suspect here. Mm. Yeah. So some challenges out there for our medical profession at the moment for both the, the practices and for the individuals as well. Mm. Mm. That's right. Well, let's um, let's go to the last one. It's, um, it's uh, been we- uh, perhaps about a year, I think, since we had this finalised. Um, so this, 2019. 2019. So okay, even well longer than that. Well, yeah. I mean, 2020 didn't really exist anyway, did it? <laughs> so we've got um, the Optical Superstore here, which, as I said at the start, is a payroll case. So a little bit different to, uh, um, you know, in terms of that's not not really something where the ATO has a role. But what's important to note with payroll tax is that um, they have actually, or the states and territories have actually harmonised the payroll tax acts which means that they essentially have the same clauses sometimes they're different clause numbers but they have the same wording of the clauses so therefore a decision in this case in victoria does have um, implications for all the other states and territories Mm. Um, and i'm absolutely very aware that new south wales was pretty happy with this optical superstore decision that the state revenue office achieved in victoria yeah the osr and new south wales have been uh been very interested in this they're a very active um state revenue office they are indeed (laughs) and i whilst that potentially puts them ahead of other states around the country i I think that uh, every every state would be looking at this absolutely yeah so i guess let's um let's have a few of the the basic facts of the opt- optical superstore case sure so optical superstore i mean we'll conflate it back to just call it optical superstore but it was really four different trusts all of which ran separate optical dispensary businesses and the trusts entered into these arrangements with optometrists um, or with their practice entities and again we'll just call them optometrists which had generally the following types of characteristics that the customer who walked into a store received services from the optometrist. Mm-hmm. So, so if I, you or I went in there having glasses, we would just book in. We wouldn't 
necessarily identify the optometrist we saw. We would just see anyone that was available, wouldn't we? That's right. You'd yeah. go in, you get your yeah. eyes tested. They mm-hmm. yeah, put the funny little glasses on, and is it better or worse? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah all of that. Read the bottom line. Yep. Yeah, that's right. H N Y. But anyway, <laughs> all of that. Um, the fees for those services were then. Uh, each optometrist could set their own fees. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fees were paid into the service entity's bank account. Now, okay, the, so into one single bank account? That. It was one mm. single... Well, it might have been four for each trust, but oh, yeah. each, each yep. location had its own bank account. By yep. this in, that's certain. Now, the agreements that they, that Optical Superstore had with each optometrist was that the monies that went into the service entity's account were held on a trust. It specifically said that. So that's called an express trust because they've they've expressed the phrase that it was held on trust for the optometrist. So that so meant the optometrists was... were beneficially entitled to those amounts? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So the, the, the optometrist fees were held by the service trust on their behalf. Mm-hmm. So the accounting system that Optical Superstore operated was sufficiently uh, advanced that they could track each payment and know exactly which receipt into their bank account was for a fee that was for a service provided by an individual optometrist. So they could absolutely track it down to the doc, to the, to the medical person's um, services mm-hmm. that were provided. So the fee arrangement as between the optometrist and optical superstore was that the optometrist paid an occupancy fee for the use of the premises. The fee was calculated by saying, well, what's the gross revenue that the optometrist has raised? Mm-hmm. Less uh, a reimbursement amount. And the reimbursement amount was a number of hours that you worked times an agreed rate. So if someone worked 37 and a half hours in a week times whatever the rate was, that was taken away from the total fees and the net was the re- the reimbursement amount, or the, sorry, the occupancy fee that was paid to Optical Superstore. So there was a gross amount. You worked out um, from that gross amount the reimbursement amount, which was based on the hours worked times an agreed amount. Yes. And then the net of that was actually the occupancy fee that was then held by or retained by the store owner. Was invoiced by Optical Superstore to the optometrist. And okay. that was the fee that, that they had. So there was an invoice, but, but the actual payment that occurred was then uh, the payment out of that single bank account to the respective optometrists. Yeah, and that was yeah. described as being a reimbursement Mm. of the, the monies that were beneficially mm. held for the optometrist. Yeah. Yeah. So, the other, so the optometrist getting that hourly fee mm. meant that the optometrist got a fee regardless of whether they were seeing a patient in that hour or, or not. Right. So, so they got a guaranteed hourly fee. They got a guaranteed mm. hourly fee. Mm. Now, if they didn't perform, obviously, yeah, there was performance management mm. option uh, procedures that would have they been undertaken. They might have not have got rusted on again. Might mm. not have. Mm. But... Essentially, so they were getting something a little bit like an employment payment, an mm. hourly rate. But just the process of it coming to them was a little different. That's perhaps. right. Yeah. That's right. Mm. So um, at the end of every month, as we're saying, the, the optical superstore said, you know, worked out how many hours an optometrist had worked, applied the hourly rate and distributed that amount or paid that amount out of the express trust or out of the bank account to the optometrist no invoice was raised for that. No GST was charged for that because, as we've said, it was beneficially owned. Was there PAYG withholding on that? I do not believe so. No. But then at the same time, they invoiced for that occupancy fee, which was kind of supporting, supported the them retained. retaining a certain amount. That's right. Yeah. That's right. 
That's right. Yep. So the State Revenue Office in Victoria then assess Optical Superstore as being liable for payroll tax on those payments that they made to the optometrist. So those amounts that were beneficially owned that they paid across. Mm-hmm. So they said that the uh, that, that was essentially akin to wages. So the test mm-hmm. in Section 35 of the Victorian Payroll Tax Act has four parts to it. Firstly, it has to be an amount paid by an employer and that covers employment-like arrangements. Um, right. So you have to find that Optical's an employer yeah. then? Yep. The second one is that it's for or in relation to the performance of work. We can probably agree that there was work being performed. Yeah, it wasn't yep. necessarily work that was performed for Optical. It was mm-hmm. performed for the patients who walked in the okay. door, yep. but it was still for the performance of work. Okay. Yep. The third was related to a relevant app. And then the fourth is, if you meet all of those, they're taken to be wages paid yep. and therefore subject to payroll mm-hmm. tax. So a relevant contract is something that was brought in to combat situations where an employee on a Friday became an independent contractor on the Monday. Right. Yep. And all of a sudden, from the state revenue's point of view, they lost the, the payroll tax revenue. Mm-hmm. So yep. uh, relevant contract essentially is those uh, is a, a contract that if it was done by someone else, they could do it in an employment type of arrangement. So if someone who's carrying on a business supplies services to another person in relation to the performance of work, that is a relevant contract. Mm. So mm. yeah, and yeah, it's probably um, to to actually really dive deep into what is a relevant contract is we don't have enough time for that, but um, it's it was very relevant in this case, wasn't it? In terms of they had did have to find that the arrangement constituted a, re- a relevant contract. That's right. Yeah, so and it is, is a critical... Um, yeah, that, yeah. that was found actually by the tribunal. Yes. And then the, the first, the, the, the Supreme Court case, the single justice case, it basically wasn't it's argued. Ex- Everyone agreed yeah. that that was the case. Yeah. And mm. then in the appeal, it was also not argued. Mm. So all the way back at the tribunal, mm. the parties conceded or the, that it was a, a relevant contract. Yep. So yeah. it was fundamental, but it was decided quite early on. Yes, yep. So what were the other aspects of it then that we needed to look at? Well, the, the, the nature of the payment is what became key at right. the appeal. Yep. At both the, the tribunal and the single judge decision, the, they both found, both those decisions found that the return of money by optical superstore to the optometrist was not a payment for the performance of work. And they talked about situations where if someone's already got a beneficial interest in the money, then you really can't have a payment to that person. So, so you're saying that the um, finding that when... Um, so first of all, all the fees went into a single bank account and then it was agreed. Um, everyone understood that the money was being held on trust for the optometrist. But at some point, that money needed to be transferred from that bank account to the bank accounts of the optometrists. Correct. So that transfer, it really came down to whether that constituted a payment and, and it really all turned on that in the end, didn't it, the it appeal did. case? It did, mm. it did. Mm. So if something goes from, if I've got two bank accounts and I put money out of one bank account to the other bank account, essentially you could argue that the that VCAT and the Supreme Court single judge decision said that 
the act of that my money going from my first bank account to my second bank account is not a payment because mm -hmm. I have a beneficial interest in it all the way through. Mm -hmm. And the full court, the Supreme Court said, well, we don't agree with that. We, we think that the payment readily embraces a payment of money to a person who's already beneficially entitled to that money. Mm -hmm. And so therefore payroll tax was uh, was decided to be... Uh, so it was a applicable. payment that with all the, all the other uh, factors being already met, a payment that was deemed to be wages for group tax purposes. That's right. Mm. And again, this uh, this was a case that uh, they knocked on the door of the High Court and said, will you hear this, mm. Your Honour? And, uh, and the High Court said no. So <laughs> so again, it's all over. That's right. And, and it's no, I've seen quite a bit of commentary about this case where the legal situation is it's always your money, mm. but the words of the section mm. don't require... Uh, this case went into a fair bit about uh, how you read law. Mm. And... You just read on the words themselves. You can't put a gloss on it. You can't put other, you know, thinking about it by analogy can give lead you down false paths type of <laughs> type of statements. So the fact that it's your money, in a in a beneficial sense, doesn't mean it can't be paid to you. Mm. And okay. all of the test in section thirty five requires is that it is uh, a payment. And I just want to note again for that was section thirty five of the. Victorian Act, the other payroll tax acts around the state and territory will have a different section number, but the same words. Yes. So it'll have the same effects. So therefore, the the findings and the principles from the optical superstore case um, will also apply to them. But again, you've got someone walks in the door and says, well, you know, uh, of an accountant and, and um, says, well, you know, how much payroll tax do we owe? You've got an accountant uh, reviewing the information. But once again, you need a, a bit of a legal understanding of the implications of this case mm -mm. Um, and it's you know making it more difficult for our our um, practitioners out there it, it so what, what advice can you give them <laughs> are you leading me can I just saying, do a disclaimer here because <laughs> that's what it seems like I'm being led your honor as a witness <laughs> well let's let me ask that differently what are the implications for this case then well, the implications have to be that uh, when accountants, if they feel comfortable trying to go through with their client what the practicalities of the day-to-day -day operation of, of these arrangements are going to be, mm. is going to be valuable for everyone to understand who's paying who for what. Mm. And that is then going to assist if you're going to get lawyers involved and say, well, we need to change this contract because of this reason. So using the optical superstore as the example, because it's the most recent one we've talked about, if, if your money in someone else's bank account being paid to you gives rise to a payroll tax liability, then practically, can you have a bank account in your name that they've got some rights to deal with, but it's your bank account? You're saying the alternative is that the store or practice entity or whatever mm -hmm. has multiple bank accounts for each of their practitioners so the money goes into them but practically the you know management or whoever needs to uh, still have has some oversight possibly or, or is there a bank those account accounts, yeah. if i'm if i'm going all the way back to helios my my cash flow in in, in any particular medical center is being generated every day as, as patients walk in the door and pay their fees. 
Cash flow for the helios, for the aggregator? Yeah, for the aggregator. Maybe not say it's helios specifically because I don't know what their situation is, but for the aggregator, their situation is they've got cash coming in all through the month and they can use that cash to pay wages, pay rent, pay the electricity bill, etc. And at the end of the month, they do a calculation and then probably four, five, seven days after that, they pay the medical practitioner Mm -hmm. their their amount. Mm -hmm. So they've got... Uh, quite a good cash flow scenario in the sense that they're getting the medical practitioner's services mm. all mm. month and they only pay for it seven days or so after the end of that month. And they've got the cash there to meet all their other expenses. That's right. You do Whereas that differently. If, if the medical practitioner's <laughs> bank account is where mm. the fees go in mm. and the aggregator's got to raise an invoice and get paid seven days after the end of the month for which all the services have been provided, then they've got to fund all of those wages and other costs for the month and they get paid seven days afterwards Mm. so there are significant sort of practical Mm. implications of trying to turn the situation to something that you can say well the practitioner just got their own money straight from the patient so we don't have any payroll tax they got their money straight from the patient we never paid them so we don't have any SGC liability they got their money straight from the patient, so they never got paid by us, so we've got no exposure for annual leave, we've got no exposure for long service leave. Mm. And it's quite a different way of operating than I suspect a lot of practices operate now. Mm. And obviously involves some risk. Yeah, there's real commercial risk. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Do you say to that practitioner, I'm happy for you to practice out of here, you've got to lodge a bond with me to do so mm. to provide a replacement for that cash flow? Yeah, particularly you'd want to be doing that if you were transitioning, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Even if um, you had a scenario like the optical superstore and then you did transition to that, is that enough? Like, if is that, uh, you know, can you con- still contract out the law? Um, have we done enough to kind of, I don't want to use subvert or, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Have we done, done enough to remove the risk of payroll tax? And, of course, you know, the the optometrist in Optical Superstore might also be um, owed superannuation in the same way that Moffat was, was. So have we done enough in terms of all these three risk issues from that arise from these cases? Is, is that enough or do you think that uh, practically, you know, the regulators, whether it's the ATO State Revenue Office, could say... That might be what you'll say you're, you're doing on paper. There might be those bank accounts there, but ultimately, you know, something different is really going on here. Yeah. You've still got control. You're still, yeah. um, you know, this is still your business and this person's still effectively working for you. There's no doubt that the in, whether it's an audit by the ATO or a review by the you know, State Revenue Authority, they're quite capable of getting down into the weeds of the day-to-day activity Mm. of what goes on and who runs the bank account and and that sort of thing. So Mm. um, the only way to know if you've got no risk is probably to get it signed off through some sort of private ruling type of process. Mm. Um, But they're only as good as you stick to it in the sense that you, you do a PBR application and you say, this is what we're going to do. In the ATO's case, they come back and say, if you just do that, then here's the outcome. Mm. If you do something else, or you stray too far from the path that we've agreed, a different outcome might arise. I think it's a really important point about private binding rulings. You're you're going to the ATO to get some assurance, but what you know, one, you need to ensure that you provide all the facts and information, and two, if you're saying that you're going to do something 
um, you know, set, set of steps or put in place a particular arrangement, as you say, you're only protected if they are the steps or the arrangement that you, that you take. That so. you follow, that's mm. right. Mm. Um, and just coming back to my point, optical supersaw stuff, superannuation, PAYG uh, withholding, wages under ordinary terms, <laughs> annual leave... All sources for active discussion <laughs> between practitioners and their clients. <laughs> then, yeah, I mean, going to super, is, there, is the arrangement that Optical Superstore had wholly for the principal and principally for the labour of the person? Now, there's certainly a contract between the optometrist and Optical Superstore. Um, you get down to who are they providing the labour for? Mm. Yeah, if, if mm. they've got an express trust saying that money is theirs, you know, Situations like Helios also come into play. Who's got their business? There's a business within a business. Mm. The optometrist mm. or the medical practitioners running their business completely inside mm. the structure of the business of Helios or the structure of the business at Optical Superstore. I think this is so, where the real tension is actually, where there's potentially or actually a business within a business. Mm. For, for all of these cases, I think this is where things mm. are getting difficult. I think it's also worth noting with Optical Superstore that those amounts were deemed to be payment of wages, even though um, many of those payments, so the transfer of the money from that single bank account to the optometrist, actually went to an entity, so a company or, or mm. trust, for example, and that did not negate or did not have any um, impact on the decision at all. So I think that's also worth noting. The yeah. payment didn't actually have to go directly to the individual, yep. going to an entity or well, I guess an interposed entity of the individual um, made no difference. Yeah, well, that's mm. absolutely what the independent contractor provisions are looking to do. Mm. They're looking to look mm. through to yes. the ultimate individual that's uh, providing the services. Mm. Yes, yep. So I, I'd expect uh, from the revenue officers, I'd expect some review work to be coming out in terms of whether it's the OSR in New South Wales, the SRO in Victoria, et cetera, around the country. Mm. Mm. Uh, would be be looking at these and starting to, to review situations. Mm. I, I think they've actually already started, I'm and I sure think another have. kind of risk area for payroll tax building on the optical superstore case is the grouping as well, uh, utilisation yeah. of the grouping provisions. Which yeah. Yes. So, thank you very much, Graham. Just maybe some any last words um, that you'd like to say on these three cases so that, that we've covered: Helios, Moffat, and Optical Superstore. I'm reminded of the uh, the phrase out of the old television show Hill Street Blues. Be careful out there. <laughs> I mean, really, you've just got to you've got to get into into the the details of what what your client's doing, mm. and yeah, they they they're best served by having it analysed and and trying to work out what's really going on and to identify the risk because you you don't want the the risk to come at you out of the blue. Mm. Yeah, it always mm. it's always the best position to pay attention and, and try and do the right thing. Mm. Yes, um, I agree. You know, in terms of the potential risk that um, that could arise, it can be very expensive and, and put a lot of pressure on the, the profitability of the business. Um, but yeah, really hard to kind of consider all of those implications in the, the not just of course the medical area, but obviously these principles apply to you know other industry areas as well. Oh, absolutely. Mm. If there was yep. just a medical theme through the cases. Yes, there was. So thanks so much for joining us, Graham. It's been really good to talk to you. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Tax Yak. Um, we'll have some more episodes coming up, including uh, reviewing some of the other cases, not necessarily the, the medical um, focus cases, over the next couple of months. So listen out for them. 
Uh, if you'd like to connect with us on social media, you can find Tax Banter on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let us know your take on episodes or suggest future topics or future speakers. You can also contact the TaxIAC team on, uh, via email at podcast at taxbanter.com.au and find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter dash blog so do have a look for that banter blog it's a really useful um, blog articles that we release on a regular basis and if you're enjoying our podcast please take a moment to rate and and write a review for the show wherever you are it will help to improve the profile of the show and we'd love to hear your thoughts thanks again graeme for joining us today and and again graeme's director of web martin consulting and tax ed and thanks for all listening we'll look forward to um, talking to you another day bye